Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. So welcome back to Sunday School. Surprise, surprise. For those of you who are wondering, I thought we finished our series on the full armor of God last week. I thought we were done with this guy. Well, yes and no. Yes, we're done with the full armor of God series, but no, you're not quite done with this guy. Uh, That was not by design. Russ Leonard was supposed to teach uh, today, but because of illness, he wasn't able to, and at the last minute, um, I I said, well, let me try to throw something together. So this is uh, the last two days putting this together, so bear that in mind, but um, I think the idea for the summer is, according to what Mark was telling me, is to have different men going through some of the psalms, various psalms. So that's what we're going to do today, and the psalm that I chose is Psalm 87. So you can turn there if you'd like, Psalm 87. And Psalm 87 is a rather short psalm. It's only seven verses, but I think it has some profound things to say. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read to you the lyrics to one of John Newton's hymns, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Because that hymn is based on this psalm, Psalm 87. So here are the lyrics to that hymn. He says, Glorious things of you are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed you for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake your sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounding you, you may smile at all your foes. See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. They well supply your sons and daughters, and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever will their thirst assuage? Grace which, like the Lord the giver, never fails from age to age. Around each habitation hovering, see the cloud and fire appear for a glory and a covering showing that the Lord is near. Thus deriving from our banner, light by night and shade by day, safe they feed upon the manna which he gives them on their way. Savior, since of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in your name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. So that is, glorious things of thee are spoken from John Newton. Great hymn. And this hymn, as I said, is based on Psalm 87, which is going to be our lesson for today. Indeed, the opening line of this hymn quotes directly from Psalm 87, verse 3. Glorious things of you, Zion, are spoken, O city of God. And the main theme of Newton's hymn is the universal church and the story of the church. The hymn opens with a vision of the new city of God in the first two verses, 
and then looks back to the early journey of the Israelites with references in the third verse to cloud, fire, and manna. The hymn is meant to remind us of the long history God has with his people and of the wonderful future awaiting those who are, through grace, members of God's family. And these are the ideas that we shall be taking up today in our lesson on Psalm 87. So let's begin by just reading the psalm, and then we'll get into it. So Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. All right. The city of Zion. The city of Zion in its ultimate fulfillment is heaven itself. And of course, all of those who have died in Christ are there even now singing praises to God who sits upon his throne as we've been learning from Justin's study through the book of Revelation. And one day we too shall be together in that setting. However, this city of Zion is to be found even here below, right now. There is a sense in which the fruits, the blessings, the benefits of Zion have already invaded this age. And we're going to explore this thought in greater depth as we proceed. But before we do that, I think it's important for us to recognize that many things uh, are different for us as saints of the new covenant as compared to the saints under the old covenant. Yet, there are some things that continue and remain unchanged. So some things are different from, for us, but some things are the same. There are certain constants of the faith, if you will, certain constants of the faith. There are principles, practices that carry over from the old covenant into the new, and the city of Zion is among them. Zion, for the Old Testament saint, was the city of Jerusalem. More specifically, it was the temple in the city of Jerusalem. It was the place where God manifested his presence in a special way, where his glory was seen and made known in an unprecedented way. And as we just mentioned a moment ago, heaven is the ultimate Zion. Yet there are scattered outposts of heaven on earth, Zion, that are here right now. The temple for us as New Covenant saints is not a literal temple in a literal city of Jerusalem in a literal nation of Israel. No, it is not a literal temple that is located in a physical geographical location. The temple is us. The temple is us. Under the New Covenant, the temple is the church universal. As the body of Christ, we make up the temple of God. The temple of the Old Testament pointed us to the spiritual reality and fulfillment of Christ and his people. 
as the body of Christ, we are the dwelling place of God. And this is one of the mysteries that has been revealed to us in the New Testament. For example, we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, that we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Whenever the temple motif is used in the New Testament epistles, almost invariably it is referring to the gathered people of God who gather together specifically for the worship of God. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we read this. Do you not know that you, and in the Greek there it's in the plural, do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you, again plural, you plural are that temple. So Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, to the entire congregation, telling them that you collectively, as the body of Christ, are this temple. This is the most explicit reference in the New Testament with regard to us, as the collective body of Christ, being the spiritual reality and fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, we read, As you come to him, as you come to the Lord, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying Zion, laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here we find that Christ is the cornerstone of a spiritual temple in Zion, and that each of us is a living stone that has been chosen in the building up of this temple. Therefore, contrary to what classical dispensationalists might claim, the New Covenant Church is not a parenthesis. The New Covenant Church is not a parenthesis, a temporary interlude in the progress of Israel's uh, prophesied history. The New Covenant Church is not an interruption to prophecy. Rather, it is the fulfillment of prophecy. The New Covenant Church is is the very apex of human history. We are in the last days. That is very explicit in the New Testament. It says that repeatedly. We are in the last days. We're not waiting for a literal temple made of brick and stone to be rebuilt in Jerusalem so that the last days might be ushered in. No, we are in the last days. And the temple is being built right now. All throughout the world right now, every time the Lord effectually calls someone else to salvation, that is another stone that he is bringing in to this temple that he is constructing, this spiritual temple, Zion. 
We have been blessed of God to live in the last days and are now partakers of the spiritual temple, the true Israel of God. Therefore, as we look at Psalm 87, we need to see it through New Testament glasses. When we see the word Zion, we don't have to limit ourselves to think of Zion only as an Old Covenant saint would have thought of Zion, as the actual, literal city of Jerusalem and the temple there. As New Covenant saints, we are allowed to think of Zion in terms of its fulfillment in Christ as the true spiritual temple of God, the body of Christ. With our New Testament glasses on, we are able to see that Zion is wherever God's people come together for the sole purpose of worshiping him in spirit and truth. (laughs) That is where God makes his presence known in a special way, just as he did at the physical temple in Jerusalem under the Old Covenant. When God's people come together in corporate worship, that is where God manifests his glory, and by the eyes of faith... We can see that. With our New Testament glasses on, we can actually benefit more from the Psalms than even the Old Testament saints could, because we now can look at things like Zion with greater understanding, with greater light, knowing its ultimate spiritual reality and fulfillment. This is Zion on earth. This right now, us gathered together as his people, Thus, when we read of Zion here in Psalm 87, we are to think of it as the gathering of God's people, the church. That is how we are to interpret it in its full sense. Additionally, as we read of Zion here in Psalm 87, and even elsewhere in the Psalms, it should probably serve as somewhat of a rebuke to us. Because what you often find when you read from the psalmists When they're writing about Zion, they're very zealous about Zion. They're very excited about it. They want to be there. They long to be with God's people. There is a real passion there. Indeed, there are several psalms of ascent, 15 psalms of ascent, that were sung by worshipers as they were making their way up the hill to Jerusalem, up, up to the Mount of Zion, where the temple was in anticipation of worshiping their great God with all of his people together. And if old covenant saints could get that excited, that worked up, that zealous to be with God's people there at the Temple Mount in Zion under the old covenant, how much more excited and zealous should we be? Since we now have greater light by which to understand the spiritual reality and fulfillment of Zion, knowing who the chief cornerstone is, And how he has chosen us to be his living stones, who are united to him and are precious in his sight. Do we enter into the gates of Zion each Lord's Day with that kind of zeal? I know I can say, no, I don't always do that. Do we often have to drag ourselves here? This should serve as a rebuke to us. We should be like the psalmist who exclaims, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Of all people, we should be filled with so much more joy and delight in coming to Zion. All right, so that was all by way of introduction. What I'd like to do now is give five glorious truths about Zion, the church. Five glorious truths about Zion, the church, that we find here in Psalm 87. 
And the first glorious truth is this. Zion is a place that is built. (coughs) Zion is a place that is built. In verse 1 we read, On the holy mount stands the city he founded, or built. And again in verse 5, And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her, or build her. Zion is a place that is built, or founded, or established by God. In other words, from the psalmist's perspective, the temple and all that it meant was not something that man came up with. It was not a construct of human thought. When we think of the Old Testament temple, remember, every minute detail of that temple came from God. I mean, every minute detail. The curtains, the utensils, the attire that the priests were to wear, all the jewels on the breastplate, all of the temple furniture, all of the accoutrements, all of that originated in the mind of God. It was very detailed, very precise. The design of the temple and even the gifted men who took that design and implemented it, we read that the Holy Spirit had specifically raised them up for that purpose. The entire construction project of the temple was initiated and overseen by God himself from beginning to end. Thus the Lord established Zion. He founded it. Now from a new covenant perspective, what verse comes to mind when we think of Christ establishing the church? Probably Matthew 16, verse 18. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What was this rock that Christ was referring to? He's he's referring to Peter's confession. And Peter's confession, by the way, was not revealed to him by flesh and blood. It was revealed to him by the Father. He says, blessed are you, because the Father revealed this to you. So it was by grace. So what was this, this rock, this confession of Peter? It was that Christ is the Son of the living God. That was the confession. In other words, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in this Christ alone. That's the rock. That confession, that rock, is what is going to build, what Christ uses to build his church. As more and more people, again, profess that, they make that confession as Peter did, they are brought in as living stones, and Christ then builds more of this glorious temple. But Christ emphatically states that he will build his church. I will build this church. He shall build Zion. It's it's his building project. Man does not design and build the church. Christ does. Zion, the church, is a place that is built, and its builder is Christ. And so there are a couple of implications or inferences that can be drawn from the fact that Zion is a place that is built. For one thing... Implication number one, if the church is the Lord's building project, then it cannot fail. It cannot fail. As we just read, the the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Or as we read earlier from John Newton's hymn, Glorious things of you are spoken, Zion, city of God. He whose word cannot be broken formed you, made you, built you for his own abode, his own place to dwell. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake your sure repose? 
With salvation's walls surrounding you, you may smile at all your foes. Christ is the one who is building the church, and nothing can stop that. It will not fail. Although this particular outpost of heaven, Cornerstone Baptist Church, may someday no longer be here. We, we hope not, but it could happen. Nevertheless, the church in general, the church universal, the building project of Zion, is not going to fail. So long as this earth remains, the Lord is not done with his spiritual rock collection. So long as this earth continues to go, the Lord is not done with his spiritual rock collection. He is collecting his precious stones and building them up into a glorious temple so that he and man may dwell together forever. The second implication, implication number two, if the church is the Lord's building project, then we must abide by his blueprint. We must abide by his blueprint. If we're going to be used as means, as instruments of God, as tools in his hands and helping to build his church, we need to be careful that we don't get the idea that it's our church and that we can just do whatever we want that we can resort to any kind of strategy that we feel like. No, it's his building project. He's the general contractor. He is the one who tells us what he wants in his church and what he doesn't want. And the blueprint that he has given us is that we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. We are to worship him sincerely from the heart, not just merely giving lip service. And we are to worship him as he has ordained according to his word. This is sometimes referred to as the regulative principle of worship. We worship God only as he has ordained. God is jealous for his worship. He is very, very particular about how we are to worship him, as we already saw, as we were going through just the temple design, the the curtains, the utensils, the, the, the priestly attire, the furniture, the accoutrements, all of that. You get the idea that he knows what he wants, and he's very specific in revealing what he wants, and that is what we are to abide by. He's very jealous for his worship. Indeed, next to the sin of idolatry, which is really the essence of the first commandment, of the Ten Commandments, is the sin of worshiping God in a way that he has not ordained. That is the essence of the second commandment. You don't just come to God worshiping him however you want. We are not free to play fast and loose with the ordinances or with anything else that is related to our corporate worship. All that is done within the church is to be done in truth. Truth is not to be compromised. If he is the architect of this building, then we had better take heed not to add or subtract anything to or from his blueprints. It's easy for us to think that we can make alterations to God's blueprints. Just this past week, I was reading a a post on social media from a pastor of a church that's right around the corner, and he was making it fairly obvious in this post that he's affirming LGBTQ, and probably because it's Pride Month, probably he's trying to virtue signal, he's trying to be seeker-friendly, but that's compromising the truth. It's easy for us to think that we can make alterations to God's blueprints. But we are not to condone sinful lifestyles. We're to speak the truth because only the truth can set one free from the bondage of sin. Yes, we want to be seeker-friendly, 
but only in the sense of John 4, verse 23, where Jesus says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking, the Father is seeking, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is the seeker of those whom he wants worshiping him. He wants those who are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. So the only seeker that we should desire to accommodate in our corporate worship is the Father. Number two, Zion is a place that is built, and Zion is a place beloved. Zion is a place beloved. In verse 2, we read that the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob. Now, this is a very peculiar verse. I still remember the first time that I comprehended what was actually being said here. For me, it was another example of how this has to be the word of God. This can't just merely be the words of men. Because this verse is so unexpected. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob? I don't think I ever would have guessed that. I don't think anyone would have ever guessed that. I think it had to have been revealed in Scripture. At first glance, it's counterintuitive to think that God loves the corporate worship of the gathered church more than the private devotional worship of individual Christians. First of all, there's, there's degrees to God's love. God loves some things more than others, apparently. We know that he hates some sins more than others. Some are an abomination to him. So there's degrees in, to his hatred of sin, so it makes sense there might be degrees in his love for different things. Evidently, God loves public worship more than he does private worship. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't love our private worship. Of course he does. It simply means that God takes greater delight in seeing his people come together as one in unity to praise and worship him. Now, this should make sense when we remember that our God is a God of unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. He is a triune God. He is one being, yet three persons. One being, unity, yet three persons, diversity. Unity in diversity. Thus, he desires that his church reflect this, reflect this unity and diversity. And the only way for that to happen is for diverse people, those from every tribe and tongue and kin and nation, ethnicity, for this diverse people to come together in unity as a corporate body. Then it reflects the unity and diversity of our God. Hence, God loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And why mention the gates? Why does it say the gates of Zion? Well, in Isaiah 60, verse 18, the gates of Zion are referred to as gates of praise. Thus, I think the picture is of a throng of people pouring into Zion through the city gates while pouring out praises from their mouths to the king of the city. So they're pouring in and pouring out. Pouring into the gates, pouring out praises. This is what the Lord loves most of all. The praise that issues forth from one mouth, no matter how beautiful, can never match the power and splendor of several voices blending into one. 
A solitary song of praise is no match for the harmonies of a heavenly choir. We've all heard a, a soloist singing, and maybe the, that person has a beautiful voice. But if you've heard a choir, a big choir, where there are multiple harmonies taking place, I mean, it, it just doesn't compare. God loves the full orchestra more than the instrumental soloist. He loves the symphony more than the sonata. For this reason, when we come together as the gathered church in corporate worship, the Lord is present in an extraordinary way. Indeed, in Revelation 2, verse 1, we're told that Christ walks among the lampstands. He walks among the lampstands. And as Justin pointed out many weeks ago, when we studied that portion of the Revelation, those lampstands referred to local churches. The lampstands were the church. And Christ is walking among them. Thus, in a mystical way, Christ is here with us, walking among us, communing with us in a special way when we assemble together as a local body of believers. Moreover, we read in chapter 2 of Hebrews, he's not ashamed to call us brethren, that he rejoices over us, and that he even sings with us while we sing. Hebrews 2, verse 12, I, Christ, will tell of your name, Father, to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. And the word for congregation there is ecclesia, church. That's the word for church. I will sing your praise. And the word there in the Greek, I will sing your praise, is where we get the word hymns from. So he's saying, I will tell of your name, Father, to my brothers in the midst of the gathered congregation. I will sing your praise. He inhabits our praises. He is truly present, obviously not physically, but in spirit, in the means of grace. When we sing prayers together during our worship service, okay, when we sing, those are prayers. And he is acting as a priest, making those those prayers, a sweet aroma to the Father. He's there. In the preaching of the word, he is speaking through the person behind the pulpit. He is acting as prophet. In the ordinances of communion, he is reminding us again of uh, the fact that he is our sacrifice once and for all. So again, he's acting as our priest. Or through the ordinance of baptism, we see you know, death and resurrection, so we see his office of king, that he has power over death, and that he gives us this power to fight the remaining sin that we have. So in the means of grace, he is present. It is the Lord's preference to meet with his people in public worship, in his word and by his spirit. Now, you might frequently have blessed fellowship with the Lord in your private devotion and worship time, and I hope that you do. But the Lord hasn't really granted a promise to you as an individual to meet with you in a special way as he has promised to his gathered church. When the church gathers, Christ has promised to be among them in a special, extraordinary way. While God delights in the prayers and praises of Christian families and individuals, he has a special eye to the assemblies of the faithful. The great festivals of the Old Covenant, when the crowds surrounded the temple gates, were most fair in the Lord's eyes, as is the general assembly of the church under the new covenant. Though the Lord undeniably loves 
the dwelling places of Jacob still, he loves the gates of Zion more. To quote John Gill, John Gill says, He, the Lord, loves the persons that reside in the dwelling places of Jacob, and what is done there in their personal dwellings in a right manner as closet and family worship. He delights in that. But when these are put in competition with public worship, the latter is preferred to them because done by more and more publicly. Zion and its gates, the church and its ordinances are preferable to all the dwelling of Jacob put together. So says John Gill. Thus, Zion, the gathered church, is a place beloved. It is a place beloved. And there are a couple of implications that can be drawn from this. First off, implication number one, if the Lord loves to be in this place among his gathered church more than any other place, then what a special place this must be, right? What a special place this must be. Now, you might not think that when you walk through the doors and you see those around you, or you just reflect upon yourself when you look Without and within, it may not be readily apparent to you that this is some beloved place. You might think to yourself as you're walking in, I think Paul was right. God has certainly chosen the foolish and the weak of the world to be his people. Nevertheless, the good shepherd loves to be among his flock, no matter how spiritually mangy they might be. He loves to give them rest in green pastures, and to lead them to still waters so as to restore their souls. How many times have you come to gather with the Lord's people, spiritually scabbed over and mangy, the worse for wear after your warfare with the world all week, and yet you leave refreshed, restored, revitalized, rejuvenated? Do you not sometimes come to the Lord's house on the Lord's day feeling sick in your soul, Yet you, have, you leave having been healed by the herbs of heaven. You received from God exactly what you needed at that moment, perhaps from the lyrics of one of the songs that we sang, perhaps from the preaching of the word, perhaps from a conversation you had with a brother or sister, perhaps from all of those things combined. And now you're ready to face another week of battle. And then by the end of the next week, your spirit might be dragging again, hanging on by only a thread of faith, but then the Lord meets you where you are at again, and so the cycle continues. Work, grind, rest, refreshed. Work, grind, rest, refreshed. The gathered church is oftentimes a, a spiritual hospital, is it not? This is a special place. This is a special place of healing. It is beloved by the Lord. This is the clinic where the great physician practices, where the good doctor is always in. Thus, we need to view the gathered church the way that the Lord views it. It is his favorite place to be. He loves to bless his people when they gather corporately to praise their Savior and to rejoice in so great a salvation. He loves to dispense his favor to his people when they are together. And for those of us who are parents and maybe some who are grandparents, this should make sense, right? Don't we love it when we see everyone coming together, the whole family don't we love that the most? When the whole family is together laughing and sharing a memory and loving each other, I think that's the essence of what is being said here. The Lord loves 
the gates of Zion more than the individual dwelling places of Jacob. That doesn't mean that we don't love our individual children. Of course we do. But there's something special when they all come together. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob. The gathered church is where the Lord Christ gets to look upon his heritage, his spiritual offspring, the many sons of glory that were promised to him by the Father. That is why the Lord loves to be in this place among his gathered church more than any other place. That is why Zion, the gathered church, is such a special place. It's a a weekly family reunion of sorts. Therefore, implication number two, if the Lord loves to be in this place among his gathered church more than any other place, then so should we. So should we. Doesn't matter what the person next to you looks like, spells like, what kind of personality quirks they might have, what sins they might be struggling with at the present moment, what their status is economically or financially, none of that stuff matters. If they are in Christ, they are one of the excellent ones of the earth, in whom is all the delight of the Lord. They, like you, will one day shine like the stars of heaven in glory with Jesus. They, like you, have been chosen by God to be united to Christ and to be glorified in Christ. They, like you, are an heir of all things. They, like you, will one day appear to be like him. Knowing this, therefore, we ought to see each other with the eyes of faith, with proleptic eyes. Proleptic just means to assume a future act as if it is presently existing now. That's how we should see each other, proleptically, as if it's already a present reality. We are the sons of glory. We ought to come into this place realizing how wonderful and special a place this is and whose company we are in. We are in the company of Christ. Remember, he's walking among the lampstands. We are in the presence of Christ, the king of glory, And we are in the presence of the excellent ones of the earth, the sons of glory. This is a glorious place. This is the most glorious place in all the earth, Zion. This is a miniaturized version of the Shekinah glory of God that shall one day be manifest in all its fullness in the ultimate fulfillment of Zion in heaven. This is just a preview, a sneak peek, the trailer of things to come when we will all be together, all the saints throughout the ages, and then we shall truly see Zion in all its glory. Therefore, brethren, we should see this place, the gathering of the saints, Zion, as the most glorious place to be. All right, so Zion is a place that is built. Zion is a place that is beloved. Thirdly, Zion is a place of brilliance. Zion is a place of brilliance. In verse 3, three, we read, Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Glorious things of you are spoken. Glorious means brilliant. That which shines, that which is resplendent. In Ephesians 3, verse 10, Paul explains that through the church, through the church, us gathering, the manifold wisdom of God is being revealed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, to the angels. The manifold wisdom of God is being revealed to them through us, the church, as we gather. 
Does that give you a fresh perspective, maybe, of the church? Does that give you a greater appreciation of what takes place here when we gather? Peter tells us that the angels look longingly into the grace and salvation of Christ that is proclaimed in the gospel when we gather as the church. In fact, in the Greek, the idea is that the angels are stooping sideways to look intently. They're stretching their necks to get a better view of what's taking place here. Now, why do both Paul and Peter mention the fact that angels are very interested in what takes place when we gather? In the proclamation of the gospel, why are they so curious about these things? What is the manifold wisdom of God that is being made known to the angels? Well, think about what happened when Adam fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. We know that the angels had already fallen because... Clearly, Satan was there and tempting Adam and Eve to fall into sin. So that had already taken place. Thus, from the point of the elect angels, they've already kind of been there, done that. They've already seen what happens when creatures seek to be autonomous and rebel against their creator. They see what the result of that is. Justice. Those angels who fell with Satan received the due penalty of their sin. They were exiled from paradise. They were exiled from their proper abode of heaven. And their ultimate fate is eternal damnation. So that's naturally what they would expect here. They would anticipate that now that man has fallen into sin, it's going to be the same thing. Justice, justice, justice. That's what they know of God. So man has to be exiled from paradise and his ultimate fate is going to be that of the fallen angels, eternal damnation. However, God does something a little bit different with man, doesn't he? With his image bearer. He, he makes a promise. He promises that he's actually going to save a portion of them. What? I mean, from the angel's perspective, well, he didn't do that for us. How's that going to work? This must have baffled the angels. What is God doing? <laughs> If he saves some of them, well, how is justice going to be served? Is he just going to sweep that sin under the rug for those that he saves? I mean, how's this going to work? Like us, they had to wait for God's progressive revelation to unfold. They had to wait and see that in the fullness of time, a promised Messiah would come. The God-man. That must have blown their minds. He's becoming one of them? And he lives a perfect life and he dies a perfect death on the cross and then is resurrected from the dead? It's the cross that makes them realize, ah, this is how justice and mercy kiss. Now I see it. Now I see the manifold, manifold wisdom of God being displayed. Without the gospel, the angels would only know God to be a God of justice. They wouldn't understand that he's also a God of patience and long-suffering, that he is a merciful and gracious God, and neither would we. And by the way, this is the answer to the age-old question, why does evil exist? Evil exists because we would never be able to understand the many attributes of God without it. That he is... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How could we understand any of that if there was no evil or sin? Every one of those attributes requires that context. God is merciful. Merciful to what? He could only be merciful if there's evil, if there's sin. He's gracious, again, towards what? He's slow to anger? Well, that can only happen if he's made angry. By what? Evil and sin. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness? Again, because of sin and the presence of evil. He forgives? He forgives iniquity, transgression? Yes, he forgives sin because he's a forgiving God. And he will by no means clear the guilty. That's justice. But how would we know that God is just if there were no guilty? Guilty of what? Guilty of evil. Guilty of sin. So how could we possibly understand our God for all that he is if there was not evil, if there was not sin? The fall of man was necessary so that the manifold wisdom of God could be revealed in the gospel and would be manifested by his church to the praise of his glorious grace, both on earth and in heaven. This is what the angels are looking into. This is what makes Zion a place of brilliance. So Zion is a place that is built. Zion is a place beloved. Zion is a place of brilliance. And fourthly, Zion is a place of birth. In verses 4 through 6, we read, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, This one was born there. Now, when you hear the name Rahab, you probably think of the woman who helped the spies in Jericho. That's not what it's talking about here. Rahab was actually a a monster of ancient pagan mythology and symbolized Egypt in the Old Testament. And so when you see Rahab there, think Egypt. Egypt and Babylon were two of the superpowers of the ancient world who were both fierce enemies of Israel. And yet here we find that they are also worshiping the Lord in Zion. And not only them, but many other enemies of Israel, Philistia, Tyre, Ethiopia. And this multinational worship is pictured as a great joy to the Lord. Again, this is the church. This is that great multitude spoken of in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. The great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, Egyptians, Babylonians, Philistines, standing there before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Were we not all born enemies of God? Were we not all by nature at enmity with God, children of wrath? Were we not born spiritual Egyptians, spiritual Babylonians, spiritual Philistines? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were at enmity with God, made us alive together with Christ. We were reborn. 
We might have been born a spiritual Babylonian or Egyptian or Philistine, but we've been reborn as citizens of Zion. And to be born in Zion is to be born as royalty. To be born as royalty. Because only royalty is allowed in this city. You must be an heir to the throne if you are to be a citizen of this great city of God. And we are. Every one of us. The noblest status of all is to be able to say, I was born in Zion. There is no higher privilege. This is your identity, to be a citizen of Zion. That word identity is such a buzzword now. And it's so sad to see so many who make their identity, their sexuality, or their ethnicity, or something else. No, this is to be the identity of man. This was always to be his identity, the image bearer of God, to be a citizen of Zion. So revel in that, that you were born in Zion. This is your identity. Zion is a place that is built. Zion is a place beloved. It is a place of brilliance. It is a place of birth. And fifthly, finally, Zion is a place of basking. Zion is a place of basking. In verse 7 we read, Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. All my springs are in you. When we think of singing and dancing, we think of joy. We think of celebration. Now I've got celebrate good times running through my mind. (laughs) But that is what the gathered church should be. A place of joy. A place of celebration. It should be a place of basking, basking, soaking up the light of the sun, S-O-N, bathing in the light of the sun, reveling and rejoicing in the riches that we have in Christ, that we can say, I was born in Zion, a place where we praise the Lord for the healing streams of water that we get to enjoy every single week while enduring the wilderness of this world. We get to praise him for this weekly watering hole, this oasis in the desert that he has given to us to sustain us. God is not willing that our souls should suffer this earthly pilgrimage without regular rest stops of refreshment, lest we become spiritually dehydrated and perish along the way. Thus he has made Zion a place of basking, a weekly rest stop for our soul. As it says in Psalm 46, verses 4 and 5, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. He shall not be removed. All right, to conclude this lesson, I leave you with this very simple exhortation. Love most what God loves most. Love most what God loves most. Hopefully, I would, my desire in this lesson is that we would all come to appreciate what this is more. That we would see the spiritual reality of, of what this is and the blessings that are associated with it. Our attitude towards Zion, the gathered church, should be that of the psalmist. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. 
if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem, Zion, above my highest joy. Again, the heart of the true worshiper of Jehovah is seen in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise for a day, just a single day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Do you believe that? Here the psalmist exclaims his desire to be just one of the birds that had taken up a permanent residence within the temple. For then he could always be among the elect, praising God. True subjects love the courts of their king. True subjects love the courts of their king. This is the heart that most pleases the Lord. The soul that longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. The soul that desperately thirsts for the satisfaction that is only quenched in the corporate worship of God. For our benediction, I will leave you with the lyrics to another hymn, this one from Isaac Watts, and then some verses from Hebrews 12. But this is what Isaac Watts has to say. Come, we that love the Lord, and let our joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord, and thus surround the throne. The men of grace have found glory begun here below. Celestial fruits on earthly ground from faith and hope, they do grow. The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. Then let our songs abound and every tear be dry. We're marching through Emmanuel's ground to fairer worlds on high. And from Hebrews 12. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen.